Yep. You find yourself there? My goodness. I don't know. I'm not a big Christmas light decorator, but some people in Salt Lake sure are. Have you seen some of those houses? You drive by and your cell phone stops working and <laughs> all the energy is zapped and your hair goes, Zip. yeah, that's where I went this morning. <laughs> no. Well, good morning. Welcome. It's great to see you guys. Um, what did he say at the beginning of this clip to his son? He said, we're going to have the best house, whether the neighborhood or the street. Why did he do this? It wasn't really the Christmas spirit. It was all about having the best house compared to everybody else, you know, having the, the being first, really. Now, that might have seemed a little exaggerated, um, some of, of what went on there, um, but I was thinking through this, this whole tendency of people, of me, maybe you, to, to be first in something, to mean something, and I came across, well, I thought about the, the Guinness Book of World Records. My son Casey loves that book. He gets it every chance he gets. He rents it or gets it from the library. And you wouldn't believe the things people do, the time they, and money they spend on unbelievable things. Why? Because they want to have their name in a book. They want to be first in something, however outrageous that might be. So I got a few samples for you here. First one I just thought was irresistible. They have an entry in there for the loudest burp. 104.9 decibel. Unfortunately, I don't know what that compares to, but it sounds loud, I'm sure. Um, and not surprisingly, a Brit um, set that record. Um, all that warm beer. Um, anyway, here's another one. And this is an American. I tried to even this out here. Have a Frenchman, too. Germans don't do anything crazy. But uh, we have an American here. His name is Dennis Avon. You might want to look this dude up. <laughs> there is an entry in the Guinness Book of World Records for the person with the most surgical procedures to make themselves look like an animal. This guy has had 14 surgeries to make himself look like a cat. And this is not a joke. You should see his picture. It's in 3D, too. Whoa! I mean, can you imagine the money? I don't think any insurance covers that. I, I don't know. But uh, the money and time and pain invested, so he has his name and picture in a book because he looks like a cat. Then the strangest diet comes out of France. A Frenchman named Michel Lotito started eating metal in the year 1959. And then they had this quote in here. I couldn't believe Doctors described his ability to consume two pounds of metal per day as unique. <laughs> really? You think so? Yeah. Well, this is what he's been eating since 1966. Hope you can stomach this. <laughs> anyway, uh, sorry. 18 bicycles, 15 supermarket trolleys. I always wonder where they go. <laughs> um, seven TVs. Six chandeliers, two beds, a pair of skis, a computer, and here's the best, one complete Chesna light aircraft. A light aircraft, like a sports plane. Unbelievable. And then this one, another American to top it off. 
This is just plain silly, but people do this. This is the entry for the most toilet seat lids broken with his head. Like this, 46, Kevin Shelley. All that to show, you know, that movie isn't all that outrageous. There's people doing outrageous things, spending outrageous amounts of money and time into things that are just crazy, all for a sense of significance, for an effort to be first in something, however crazy that might be. So let's bring that to a more personal level. How, I don't think any of you, is that crazy? But what, where do we, where do I try to be first? Where does that desire come out? And I, I truly think that we all have, have that desire somewhere deep within us. Some of us more than others, maybe. Um, but this desire to be best, to be first, to be great at something compared to others. And often, you know, we hear that this is especially developed in men. Maybe that's true. It's especially developed in me. I know that. You might not notice by looking at me now, but I used to play semi-professional soccer. I almost made a career out of it. And, um, you know, the games were usually Saturdays or Sunday afternoons. You know what my first thing I would do Monday mornings? Get the paper and check what have they written about me. Did they get it all right? Any mention of my name was, was just great. And I would keep them and categorize them. And because, why? Because it gave me a sense of accomplishment, of pride. And of course, as an athlete, it's kind of, you, know, you can't, really can't get away from the, the desire to be first. If you're in a team sport, you want to be first string. You don't want to sit on the bench. And of course, you constantly compare yourself to other people. If you're on the team, you want to win. You want to be first at the end of the year. It's just, it's in us. And so the question is, is it really only a problem for men? Oftentimes you hear that. Oh, man, they compare this and that, and who's stronger, bigger, you know, greater. So I asked my wife about that. I said, honey, is this really only a problem for men? Where, where does this come in for women? And couple of things she said. One is, you know, there's this, this ideal out there for women that you compare yourself to. And who can? I mean, please, who can compare to my wife, you know? Uh, no. Um, but there's this ideal out there. You come, whoa, can I measure up? And, and all of that going on. And then the one thing that my wife pointed out was around you, there's always that apparent supermom. You know, the woman that has it all together. The kids are great, they always obey, and they're always respectful, and, and, you know, the house is always spotless, and so that's why she got herself a little sign in the kitchen that says, sexy women have messy kitchens, <laughs> so that's an excuse. But you know, she, there's always that woman around that you, supermom, and oh man, I can't be that. Now that's not the thing I struggle with, but... I think all of us have that, besides pastors, of course, right? Pastors are immune to, to this because we're spiritual and we read the Bible a lot and uh, we're so close to God, we're like this. And so we don't struggle with, with this, you know, positioning and comparing and being first and great. Well, I'm really glad that it was my turn this morning because this is an area that God has put His finger on in my life. 
very strongly recently. And so I just want you to know up front, I, I am so far from having arrived, <laughs> so far from having arrived, but I'm excited to take you a little bit on that journey with me that God's been taking me on through the passage that we're going to look at this morning. You know, I just want to be really transparent with you how that struggle affects me. When, when we accepted the invitation to come here, you know, people in Germany started asking us, so what, what about this church and where are you going? And the question I loved the most was, well, how big is this church? And I could very humbly say, well, 12 to 1,300 people. Well, in Germany, that's a mega church. <laughs> I, I've never attended a church with more than 300 people. <laughs> or, you know, where I was a member. I, a friend of mine is a Baptist pastor, and it's 700, and that was the largest Baptist church in southern Germany. And I mean, you know what? I caught myself feeling so good about being able to say that. I catch myself wanting to check the YouTube hits after our sermons go online. How many hits did Coley get? How many did I get? And I tried to allow the Lord to catch me before I actually go there. But, and it sounds funny, but you know what? It's a prison. And it's, it's really sick, but I think it's in our nature. It's in mine, I know that. I'm pretty sure it's in yours. The degree might vary, but I struggle with that. Do you? So as you can tell, God is doing something in that area. And, you know, coming here and joining this staff, and what a privilege is it. But, and you measure, you, you, you compare yourself to communicators like Dave Nelson and Andy Marshall, and it's done, and people tell you, oh, you got big shoes to fill. Mm, I know. <laughs> so I just want you to know I struggle with this. So don't take it as, oh, here comes the truth, and let me tell you I got it all figured out. Oh, I don't. But I'm, I'm on the journey, and I want to join, invite you to go on it with me. So let's have a look at this scripture that we want to look at this morning. And I'm done crying, I promise. <laughs> Matthew 20. Verses 20 through 28. I just want to read it through once and let it kind of sink in, and then we'll go through and pick it apart verse by verse. It'll be fun, I promise. So, Jesus is out with his disciples, and in verse 20, the mother of the Zebedee's sons, and the Zebedee's sons are John and James, two of the closest, three closest disciples um, out of the group of 12. Um, so the mom of John and James approaches Jesus. She comes to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked for a favor. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Oh, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Oh, we can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten, the other disciples, heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, uh, sorry, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So let's, let's go through this, and I'm just going to go back through this passage and stop at certain times and just take you on the journey that I went on, or that God took me on, studying this. And I just, you know, reading the first sentence, I can't help but think, gee, why is the mother coming to Jesus? The boys are right there. John and James are right there. It says so. They've been with Jesus for almost three years at this time, face to face, every day. And here, mommy comes and asks for this. It's a bold request they're making through her. And I'm assuming that they're making it through her, but maybe it's a mother's pride and ambition here. Do moms have that? No. No. Oh, oh you do? So maybe it's the mom's ambition for, for her sons here. But even if that, if I'd been James, I'd shut up, I can ask myself. So, but the mom comes and asks, makes this request, a bold request, and they can't do it themselves. So I just think that's really, really odd. And I don't know if you know this, but we're, we are the scholars. Uh, it's 99.9% sure that the Zebedee son, that John and James are Jesus' cousins that their mom is the sister of Mary, the mom of Jesus. So it could just be that she's thinking, oh, I'm the aunt, let me, and that she would carry more authority here. I don't know. I just think it is, it is odd that, that she would make that request for them. But she does. And uh, so Jesus says, okay, what, what is it you want? As if he doesn't know. And then she makes this request. Grant that one of these two sons of mine, my sons, may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. So Jesus has been talking about, to the disciples, about setting up his kingdom. And very recently, before this incident, he talked to them about that they will actually sit on 12 thrones and rule with him. And boy, all of a sudden, something must have clicked in them and started to work. Oh, we're going to rule. Well, rule is a hierarchy. So, and, and something started to happen. And, and so somehow... These brothers, their mother, or them together started scheming. Okay, how can we get in and be on the top of that food chain? And so she makes this request. And the, the, this request for the right and the left place in that culture, for somebody that wasn't in, in a place of authority or was ruling over others, the place to their right and left were the places of highest honor and highest authority right under the person that was ruling. So she was basically asking for a place of great honor, recognition, and authority for her sons over the other ten, obviously. And I think she was probably thinking, you know, my boys deserve this more than the others. Why else would they make this request? Probably the boys themselves thought that. And maybe it was the relational thing. Maybe they thought, you know, we're, we're, we're blood-related, we deserve this spot sense of entitlement? Oh, we don't struggle with that. Let's move on. So they ask this, and Jesus asks them a question back. Or actually, he, before he does it, he says, you know what, guys? You don't know what you're asking for. We see him say similar things. You know, at the cross, he says, they don't know what they're doing. He says, you, you don't know what you're asking. 
I think they overlooked that with a place of great honor and power comes great responsibility and great sacrifice. And obviously, they hadn't thought that through, and he knew it. He says, you, you don't know what you're asking. And then he's, he gets to the point with them, and he says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to be drinking from? And the cup is, is a matter of... Is, is a, um, a word picture, obviously, that, that is used in those times to describe a divine destiny in your life. And it could be for prosperity or adversary. It just meant this is what God has allotted for you. This is God's plan for you. could be very distinct for a certain time. And actually, a little bit later after this, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he's going to be arrested and tortured and and killed, and he's praying and talking to his father, and he says, and he, he pleads with him, he says, if there's any way that you can take this cup away from me, take it. But then he says, but not your will, uh, but not my will, but your will be done. So he submitted himself to that cup, to that will of the father, to that plan. And so basically what he's saying here is, can you handle God's plan for those in these positions? Today, he would probably say, okay, boys, can you handle this? Can you handle what you're asking for? And I just picture them behind their mommy. Yes, we can. Actually, it says, apparently, they don't even think about it. He asks them, can you handle this? And they go, yes, we can. Have you heard this before recently? Yes, we can. (laughs) The Bible is a great place for quotes. Yes, we can. They what was obviously more important to them at the point, at that point, more important than thinking of the cost and the sacrifice was, oh, yeah, whatever it takes to get there, whatever it takes to have that position. Can you handle it? They had a quick answer. Do you know what I think? One thing that this needs to teach us, we need to be very careful about what we ask for. Because often we don't know what we're asking for. We don't know the cost and the sacrifice that might be involved. You might sit in the black forest and say, God, God will go wherever you go. Next thing you know, you're in Salt Lake City. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a great thing. But we got to be careful with what we're asking for. Careful with what we tell God we would do. Yes, we can, they say. And so Jesus replies in verse 23. says, okay, you will indeed drink from my cup. Basically, he's saying, really, John and James, you can? All righty then. Then let's bring it on. You will indeed drink from my cup. James was the first martyr of the early church, the first one to give his life for the gospel after Jesus had resurrected, after Pentecost. As far, if I remember well from seminary, he was, was beheaded by King Herod. First one to give his life. Did he drink from the cup? Yes, he drank from the cup. John was the only surviving apostle who was not martyred, but he died in exile. He was persecuted his whole life. Did he drink from the cup? Yes, he drank from the cup. Did he sacrifice greatly? Yes, he did. Jesus granted their wish, but great, great cost was involved. Then he goes on to say, okay, you will drink from my cup. Because you said you can't. But the place 
who sits at the right and left of me is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared for by my Father. And you know, this is a side note and very hypothetical, but I just have a feeling that the people that will sit to Jesus left and right are not the people that probably come first to mind. I don't know if it's going to be Paul or Moses or Abraham or Peter. I, I just think it, it might just be a big surprise. Some Joe Sixpack who just, who just serves willingly somewhere in anonymity who hasn't gotten his reward here but will get it there. I don't know. I just want to think that. <laughs> it's probably not who we think it might be. But the great thing about this verse and what Jesus says here that just really strikes with me is that the Father already has it planned out who will sit there eventually in eternity. Already now He has it planned out. He has a master plan that involves all this. He is sovereign. And whatever cup He hands you, whatever cup He hands me, it's part of His plan and He is sovereign. And we can, if we can embrace that cup, that destiny, that plan that He has for us, it will free us up to let go of positioning because we will know I'm secure in God's plan. God is sovereign. He has it all worked out and figured out. So then in verse 24, the biblical soap opera starts here. The others get wind of what just happened. All right. I don't know if you watch soap operas. Several years back while I was in college, I got hooked on Days of Our Lives. I've, I've repented plenty of times, <laughs> and I've turned around and stayed away from it. But oh boy, the others get wind of it. That, that the brothers here, and they had schemed. They had schemed behind the back of the other disciples to get in there and secure these places before anybody else got to them. And the other 12 got wind of it. And what does it say? They were indignant. I don't really know what that means. It doesn't sound good. I think they were pretty angry and mad. But I have an inkling that it wasn't a righteous, holy anger where they were so concerned for James and John's heart's attitude and the corruption of their heart that they would seek such a lofty position. They were mad as they could be because they got to Jesus before they did. How do we know that? Because we read in, in Mark chapter 9, that at an earlier point, the 12 of them had already discussed this amongst themselves. They were walking through the countryside, going from one place to another. They were having this conversation, and Jesus asked them, mm, what have you guys been talking about? Oh, oh nothing. Well, no, what, what have you guys been talking about? Mm, nothing, these were good. Well, and then it turns out, and they fess up that they had been talking about who of them would be the greatest in the kingdom. So, Obviously, this was an issue for all 12 of them. And finally, these two had made their move and the others were upset that they beat them to it. And so I just picture Jesus here like a father who realizes his kids are getting into something. Our kids very rarely do this, but we can tell, you know, we hear them in the background, we hear them bickering and then, no, stop, no. And then one of them comes, daddy, Kenny did this. No, Casey did that. And we go, up, oh, up, oh, time out. And that's what Jesus is doing here in the next verse. He says, okay, time out, teachable moment. And he brings him and he says, okay, boys, come in here. Let, let's talk about this. What's going on here? And then he really gets to the heart of the issue. 
and he says something so revolutionary to their way of thinking, to their culture, to the way leadership, authority was carried out. And it is just as revolutionary today. I just think we're too familiar with this passage to realize it. So this is what he says. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. He talks about Roman, Greek culture and the way they conduct government and leadership. And he's talking about oppressive leadership, leadership that, that uses others in, in, in order to lift oneself up. They, these leaders elevated themselves to, to divine status and, and it was all about oppression and leadership and taking advantage of people. And that was, that was really the mode of operation that these disciples had, had in mind. They were going to rule with Jesus over the people. They had not understood what Jesus was talking about with kingdom yet. And then he goes on to say, he says, this is how the world operates right now. And then he says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be a servant and whoever wants to, become, wants to be first must be your slave. Seriously, if we think about that, if you want to be great, serve. If you want to be first, be a slave. How upside down is it? We're talking about an upside down Christmas. This is seriously upside down. I mean, what do we measure success by? In the workplace, success is measured by okay, income and the number of people we supervise. As a pastor, your success is measured by the number of people uh, in your congregation. When was the last time a pastor's success was measured by when he last put up chairs or cleaned a toilet or, you know? How upside down is this? It was revolutionary to the disciples then. And it's revolutionary today. They had not understood what Jesus was talking about when he talked about kingdom. They were thinking Jesus would go to Jerusalem, he would kick out the Romans and set up an earthly kingdom in which they would be the number two, three, four, down to 12 guys who would rule. And Jesus says, you guys have not understood what is going on here. It's an upside down kingdom. It's a kingdom where you gain by giving. That's what Andy talked about two weeks ago. It's a kingdom where you win by losing. We heard about that last week, and it's a kingdom where you're first by making yourself the least. And I think in these two verses, there's a progression here. Jesus talks about what it takes to be great in his kingdom. It takes to serve. And then he talks about what it means to be first. It means to be a slave. Now, great is great. No doubt about that. To be great is great. But it's something else altogether to be first. Dan Marino, great quarterback, great Miami Dolphins. You know, they, his stats are just over the top. Did he ever win the Super Bowl? No. He was great, no doubt about it. He was never first. See, and Jesus says here, if you want to be great, serve others. And the word he uses here for servant is the word for a deacon, somebody who, who cares for others, who sees the needs and meets them, somebody who takes um, directions and puts them into, into uh, place, who submits to those directions. Uh, somebody says, hey, 
hey, what needs to be done? I'll do anything. What is oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. And that is great. If we would all do that, whew, how great would that be? But you know what? Oh, I want to be first. Do you want to be first? Do you want to be great? Who wants to be first? Oh, come on. I laid it all out here today. Come on, be honest here with me. Who wants to be first in something? Who wants to be great? Who doesn't? He says, if you want to be first, he takes it another step further. You have to be a slave. And, and the word used here is talking about a voluntary submission of one's whole life to the needs and lives of others. Oh, that's another step. Serving is awesome, but this is another step of completely giving up. And that is what Jesus did for us. That's what he did for you and for me. And that's what he gets into in verse 28. And he, he set, sets himself up as the example. He says, just as the Son of Man, and he talks about himself, Son of Man was an old prophetic, prophetic word talking about the Messiah. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, I'm not asking you to do anything, he says, that I'm not willing to do and haven't done already. See, in Philippians, Paul elaborates on this. Maybe we can put that, put that passage up. It's in Philippians 2, where he calls us that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, how often have you read this passage? I've read it many, many times. Have you ever thought about that statement? He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Equality with God isn't something to be grasped. Here we have God himself, God the Son, in the presence of his Father, the creator of the universe, giving that up to become us. And that wasn't something to be grasped. I mean, we, we consider being head of the party committee in the office something to be grasped. Do you guys watch The Office? No? Anyway, I mean, the most stupid things, the most meaningless positions we hold on to and we put our elbows out. And Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped and was willing to give it up, to lay it down and give his life as a ransom for us. And that's the example we're supposed to follow? Are you kidding me? How are we supposed to do that? How is that possible? Well, you know, I think he, um, he explains it in that same verse where he says he gave his life as a ransom for many. That word is a really interesting word, ransom. What is a ransom? What does a ransom do? A ransom, by definition, frees somebody from bondage, from captivity, doesn't it? And that's what Jesus did for us. You see, unless we receive that, we receive that love that was willing to give his life to set us free, until we receive that love, 
There's no way on earth we can even come close to this. Unless we have received and have allowed Jesus to serve us in that way, there's no way we can be those servants to others. It just won't make sense. It just won't be possible. Because it, it takes His life-changing power and freedom to set us free to lay down our life for the lives of others and become that servant and become that slave to others around us. And so I want to encourage you, if you have not received that love from Jesus, if you have not received that ransom, there's no way this can make sense. But if you're as tired as I am of being in that prison, in that captivity of comparing and measuring up, oh, come and receive from Jesus today. Come and receive His love. And so I'm thinking, how did Jesus do this? The only way Jesus could do that, how he could let go of equality with God and make himself human with us was because he knew that his father's love for him did not depend on his position in heaven or on earth. It didn't matter whether he was on his, by his side in heaven or became human. God loved him nonetheless. He was so secure in his position as God's son, it didn't matter. He could serve. He could put on an apron and wash his disciples' feet because he knew, hey, I'm the son of God. I can do that. And that's what we are. If we are followers of Christ, we're sons and daughters of God. But unless we start at least to grasp the love that he has for us, that he has showered us and is ready to just release on us, there's no way we can release it on others. So I just want to encourage all of us to really seek that out. See, he wants to lay it out for us, and I can guarantee you, if we honestly come to him and say, God, I do want to lay it all down. Show me how to do it. Let me know your love. Let me know your plan. Let me know my identity in you, that I'm secure in that so that I don't need to care what others think about me anymore. Can you imagine what that would actually look like if we were to do that in, in all these different areas of our lives? If we were able to lay down our life in the workplace if your identity were not to come from how many people you supervise and tell what to do and delegate, but if you find fulfillment and blessing in serving those people, what would our marriages look like? And I want to talk especially to us men and to me. What would that look like if we would truly lay down our lives for our wives and I honestly think that for generations, maybe decades, Christian men have misused Scripture to lord it over wives. I just talked to a couple in premarital counseling about that last week. You know what Jesus calls us to do? What Paul writes? He says, husbands, loves you, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what did we just do? <laughs> what, read, what did Jesus do for the church? He laid it all down. He served. He gave it all up. I'm not doing that. What would our marriages look like if we were to do that? 
And here's, here's the thing. What would our church look like if we were to do that? And Jesus says it clearly, and this is for those of us that follow Jesus. He says, not so with you. How many churches have you seen where pastors use a church as a stepping stool to a bigger church, where they run like a business, people are hired and fired, and not so with you. You want to be great, become a servant. You want to be first, become a slave. And, oh God, I pray that this is not how we operate here. I pray that we, as a management staff, as a staff, that we're here to serve. But like I told you earlier, I struggle with that. We all struggle with that. But God wants to take us there. And it's not in our strength, it's in His. So I just want to encourage you. I want to ask the worship team to come up. I want to encourage you to seek that place where you can receive God's love to the point where you can say, yes, Lord, I know I'm loved by you and I can love others in return and I don't care what others think about me. I don't care what position I have. In terms of this church, I can tell you what that would lead to. Well, in all settings, it will lead to blessing. I know that for sure. For our church... I can tell you, if we put that into practice, we will not be able to keep people from running in these doors because they will see God's love in action. And that's not normal. That's not natural. That's supernatural. And that's what people want to see. Everybody can do natural, but only God can do supernatural, and He wants to do it through you. So as we sing this song, Amazing Love, I just want to encourage you to stand with us and, and to just start seeking God. Say, God, show me, show me your love so that I can reciprocate that to others. Let me pray before we do that. Oh, God, I am the first to say I am at the very beginning of this journey. But, Lord, I want to get there. I want to get to first in your kingdom. But, God, it's hard. We're proud. We're arrogant. It's our nature. But you want to replace it. You want to transform us by the renewing of our mind. You want to make us new. And Lord, we seek that. So I ask you, Lord, that you would just impress your love upon us. That we're so secure in your love. That we trust your love so much in your plan. That we're willing to lower ourselves to be the least. To serve, Lord. And to make ourselves slaves to you first and foremost to people around us. Amen.